Warning, the following podcast may contain material that is inappropriate for listeners that are under the age of 18, are easily offended, or get annoyed listening to the rantings of holier-than-thou-know-it-alls that are anything but. Hey everybody, welcome back. We are episode 149 of the Anime World Order. Yes, we are actually all still alive, although some of you may know that because you saw us recently at Otakon, where we presented several panels and tried to at least hang out with people as much as possible while running back and forth to (laughs) interviews and panels. Yep. So we are going to talk a little bit about Otakon and recap it for those of you who may not have been able to go and are interested in what we thought. But first, just in case somehow you found this and you don't know what you're listening to, we are the Anime World Order podcast. I am Clarissa, and with me as always are my co-hosts. This is Gerald Rathkolb. And this is Daryl Surratt, and I've already been on two other podcasts talking about Otakon, which we'll link in the show notes on our website. I was on the ANN cast with Mike Tool, and then all of us were on Annie Gamers with Evan and Alan and Kate and Carl all talking about this stuff. So hopefully we will not recycle the same jokes too many times. <laughs> I think you're overestimating the amount of original material we're capable of creating. But uh, if you have anything that you would like to let us know in response to this episode or to any other, because I know sometimes people, for whatever ungodly reason, decide to go back and listen to our archive of previous episodes... You can send us an email at animeworldorder at gmail.com. You can also comment on the blog posts for each episode at animeworldorder.com. And you can uh, message us on Twitter. We do have an Anime World Order Twitter account, which we mainly use just to post notifications for when the new episodes go up. We also do all have our individual Twitter accounts. Uh, mine is at Clarissa G. And I'm Gerald underscore A-W-O. The hardest one to remember by far. I am Daryl Surratt. That's also hard because you have to be able to spell it right. (laughs) We don't make this easy. Daryl is easy because Daryl is always Daryl Surratt. Yes. Very original name. I guess occasionally you're Surratt D. In the old IRC days, I was just my last name only. And then uh, a lot of times it was... too common now. Oftentimes taken. people People made fun of you and called you Sewer Rat. They always Which do that no matter for. what, though. <laughs> <laughs> they called me Rat Hole. That'll happen no matter what. <laughs> the, there's no getting around that. That's terrible. So yeah, I mean, I guess we can just move on directly into the, the Otakon segment. I don't think we have any particular other stuff to discuss, unless I'm wrong. For those who are interested in perhaps fast-forwarding <laughs> because they aren't interested in counterports, we also are going to review uh, anime this episode, as we typically do. Uh, what will that be before we jump into this? I am going to be talking about the show Erased, a very recent series, just uh, from earlier this year. Uh, the Japanese title originally is Bokudake Gai Naimachi. It's listed as erased if you search for it on Crunchyroll, where you can watch it all streaming still. Right. The pirates will call it by the Japanese name, because that's so much a more convenient name to say than just erased. <laughs> right. Yeah, I'm, I'm very curious, like, what the committee was, like, how, how they came up with, okay, this really long name, let's just call it erased. Mm. So, 
the arguments behind that. These right. are the sort of things I think about. I mean, I suppose it is is less mystifying than some of the previous titles that Japanese companies have tried to market things as in the West. Right. A la Skip Tracer. <laughs> Chase Tracer, you mean. Chase Tracer? Okay. Yeah. Chase Tra- yeah. Although I think that clearly the, the largest arguments that happen in Japanese uh, business in rooms must happen in the writing room for Bananya. I can imagine... <laughs> The arguments going on about that show. When, when Mike Tool said he was watching the gripping suspense series Bananya <laughs> on ANNCast, someone like legitimately responded, "Like, what was the name of that suspenseful show?" And like, he was not sold that it was a joke. Right, right. You know, because Bananya is about a, a cat that lives in a banana. Yes. And the stories will be things like Bananya tries to get into the refrigerator, and he does. The end. And b- but then they get shopping. too cold. Yes. <laughs> so this is the Bananya cast, clearly. Yes. We're going to talk Absolutely. for an hour and a half. So um, Otakon this year, it was the end of an era, as it were, because it's no longer in Baltimore. Well, for at least the next five or six years. Yeah, that's forever for the- in terms of anime generational right. <laughs> yeah. eras. There will be people who will start and end their anime careers when Otakon moves to D.C. next yeah. year. Which is definitely going to be interesting. Um, hopefully it will work out. So my understanding is that Otakon did not have the tremendous problems with attendance like they had last year. If any of you remember... Last year, they had a massive drop. I believe the number was about 30% or so. A lot of theories as to why this happened. Things such as there was a lot of news about Baltimore at the time. It was at some riots that were happened a couple of weeks earlier, a couple of months earlier, perhaps. There was also the possibility that maybe they didn't have a massive musical guest that was attracting people. We don't know for certain. But this year, I understand they recovered a bit of that. It is not recovered pre-2015 numbers. Well, yeah. And I mean, once again, I think they really did, unfortunately, have a fairly weak lineup of guests. They also had some cancellations. Although I think the cancellations mostly came in late enough that I'm not sure how many people would have changed their mind about going or not at that point. I think, yeah, like the Masaru Mariyama one, he's a guy who's sort of the Japanese guest who's always at Otakon every year. They sort of made him like honorary con staff at this point. And so for him to not be there... At the last year, it was so strange that it was yeah. going to be in Baltimore. It definitely did make it sort of seem like this final Baltimore Otakon was not like going out with a bang so much as like, all right, well, we're just getting through this last one more. But his excuse was, I actually have to do work. Imagine that. <laughs> He was working on what, uh, In This Corner of the World? Yeah, oh, that's one. I'm, and then the thing that he was showing yeah. when he sent everyone the cancellation message, it appears to be some new sort of samurai action piece. And he said right. that that was uh, a little behind schedule. But he did say that next year he'll bring In This Corner of the World with him because it's coming out in theaters by the end of this year in Japan. And so it may premiere at Otakon next year, uh, if not sooner. So that was one who wasn't there. I think really the funniest guest cancellation is also the funniest guest announcement, which is yes. Yoshiki from <laughs> X-Japan. And I even know this person, so... The last week of the convention, like the week of the convention, they basically announce, oh, by the way, Yoshiki from X-Japan is coming to Otakon. This is like Monday. This would have been their biggest guest, 
of anybody, everybody right. there. I mean, X Japan is huge, right? Like, I don't know anything about music. Daryl doesn't know anything about music, and we both know who Yoshiki is, right? So. Because X Japan was big twenty years ago, right? Which was right. when people were starting getting to J Rock and Visual K stuff and what have you. And so he announces, like, I'm going to be at the con. There's going to be a panel. We're going to give away a trip to Japan, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Within like forty eight hours. Yoshiki cancels his appearance <laughs> at Otakon. I wonder if like they forgot to clear it with somebody at the management company. And I'm sure it was some, somebody some just stupid saw thing. that and was like, "No, you can't do that." Oh, it was such a bummer because, uh, by the way, I do not want to dismiss the fact that they had some great guests. I mean, we'll talk about it later, but they had like Lashawn Thomas there, who was sure. fantastic. And such, but these are not guests who necessarily will sell tickets. Yeah, they're people we're really interested in, as opposed to people yes. who you put like on a marquee, and then like tons of people will show up. Right. And right. so th- this year, you you said it quite right, Clarissa. This year was a pretty poor year for guests, especially for Otakon. Uh, really, there was no one. Yeah, that's and I mean, special. they did have some musical guests that weren't necessarily bad, but they also, like you said, they're not the kind of people that everybody knows of like they had actually one that i mean people who are into persona right and, yeah yeah but, i thought that would have been like their big musical guest that was going to be there but then they didn't really the biggest joke about right. that was they weren't even at the con they were it was at on the thursday right? yeah. it was at the matsuri thursday for those of you who don't know lotus juice does some of the music for persona so if you play persona you hear their music just like in the <laughs> in the walking around scenes most of the time they do like hip-hop mostly you would have thought that these guys would be at the top if they couldn't get yoshiki these guys would have been there like friday or sunday like big performance no they were just another band amongst like six for the matsuri on thursday what's up otakon what's going on I'm not really going to fault the con for any of these things. Musical acts in general are kind of flaky at best. And then when you factor in the Japanese immense PR wall, we'll call it, that prevents so much of that stuff from coming out here. It's like super duper controlled, more so than even Shueisha Mangaka. Mm -hmm. I would think that whatever it was that happened was like completely out of the con's hands uh, that's just my pet theory on it that's always the thing is it's always hard to tell because there's so many things in these guest negotiations that can go wrong there's so many things that like the company can just change its mind or the company can just say like no we can only do this thursday and like you said it's out of the con's hands but yeah it, it was and just- it's hard to tell like we don't really know from the outside like how much of it is the guest people kind of maybe not doing stuff or if it's just they did the best they could but this is just kind of the raw deal that they were stuck with and the problem is that it made it look even worse because what two month and a half earlier two months earlier anime expo had such a killer lineup of guests there and musical acts like they were unbelievable and i remember you know i was chatting with daryl i was like man i hope that otakon sees this and is like well we got to do something Otakon then proceeds with one of the lamest guest lineups they've had right. in a long time. Well, one thing I will point out about that is that historically, Otakon has oftentimes been the place where the musical acts from Lantis would show up. And this yes. year, and, Lantis, yeah. everyone went to Anime Expo. And so that right. might be a sort of behind the scenes difference as to why you're seeing like that different caliber of like musical acts. Like I know um, 
All Off was there, but they were, again, just for the Sunday concert. And I think they've done a couple of things that people know about, but not like huge, super duper hits. Like, I think the thing I know right. the most like They for do is, the Mob Psycho ending. Yeah, the ending, like not the opening. Right, but, not the opening right. that everybody likes. The well, ending. I, that, I don't even uh, yeah. um, know if that's like a, a full on band for the opening as opposed to like Kenji Kawaii, right. you know, going crazy. But I think the biggest <laughs> guest for Otakon wasn't any one single person. I think it was mostly that they had the cast of Pokemon there. And right now mm-hmm. in 2016, it's an anniversary year for Pokemon. And, you know, they just are off the coattails of this app called Pokemon Go, which when it came out, there was like, you know, the number one download app in the world. And so it made like a huge amount of money. And so right and now, lost 10 million people in a month later, that doesn't so. really matter for the purpose of Otakon, though, because that's after no. Otakon ended, like just for the sake of visibility as far as getting people there right now the pokemon nostalgia is at like this very high point and i officially was old when i was 18 when pokemon roughly first started 16 or so and i never watched pokemon and so now i don't know anything about this 20 years or whatever after the fact but that was like it seemed to me like the big draw there as well as for gerald's favorite show of all time code geass uh they had a whole ton (laughs) of the creative staff for Akito the Exiled, which is like the OAV sort of side story to it. Kazuki Akane, who's the director of that, also did like Vision Askaflone and uh, everyone's favorite Hikai J. And yep. <laughs> my favorite part of this Kazuki Akane attendance was, you know how the picture policy is at Otakon where it's like, okay, you have to request for these interviews. Are you going to take photos of the guests? You know, can you, whatever. And they'll be like, okay, maybe, maybe not. If they say no, like, don't worry, we'll issue you a picture that is cleared for use anywhere. The picture of Kazuki Akane that is the official picture for him is like this look of either utter disdain or he just like smelled a fart or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> it's like did somebody ask him like hey Kazuki Akane why does Escaflone suck so much R- right like I was gonna say like <laughs> why is it that you haven't like been as good as you were 20 years ago you know even though I'm not gonna hate on uh, the new you mean this is if they let Gerald ask him a question yeah like the new birdie the mighty but like yeah I mean he's been working on Code Geass for like a while and so you know, that was one of the things where I was like, okay, this is another like big guest. And that's another thing that, you know, I wasn't fanatical about. So again, if you are into Pokemon, if you're into Kogias, those are your two big things. And also, um, they had like a lot of, in lieu of Mappa being there, because Mariyama wasn't around, they had PA Works there. And PA Works right. is like the they had studio. A, they had a nice little display in the uh, artist alley for all of their work. I thought the funniest thing was like, here is the desk where like an animator would be working at. And I just sort of envisioned like, okay, and this is where they sleep under. And this is where... <laughs> yes. <laughs> this is where they cry. Right. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, uh, PA Works, for those who don't know, they're a studio that made Shirabako, which we reviewed in a recent episode. Right. And Kuramukuro, which is a good cartoon that you should be watching. Yeah, it's, it's on, on Netflix. Netflix. Right. And then there and those are... Those the only two in, shows that The only two that shows that you know them. that you like, or the only two shows that are good? The only two shows that I know that I like. Okay, because like, your, your other I haven't favorite seen is, Charlotte. Okay, your other favorite is another, because they made that. Oh, yes, the comedy of the year. Yes, unintentionally so. Yes. Uh, Eccentric Family is the show that a certain subset of people really were crazy about, and I could never really super get into it, but I guess I can kind of respect it. But yeah, PA Works was there. Unfortunately, one of the cancellations was one of the things that I was going to be interested in is 
after two years of announcing the Kickstarter at Otakon, they finally premiered under the dog at the convention. But one of the main people leading the charge for it, Jiro Ishii, had to cancel because he got hospitalized. I guess he was out of the hospital in time, but, you know, they didn't want to chance it and have him go over to the con. But they still had the other Koji Morimoto as opposed to the famous Studio 4C (laughs) Koji Morimoto there. And they did premiere Under the Dog. I was a backer for it, so I did not go to the premiere because I'd already seen it. What annoyed me was they had, again, Otakon still hasn't learned their damn lesson about getting people in guest panels and at autograph sessions. The autograph session just said... Koji Morimoto autograph session. Right. No description in the con guide. No Nothing. picture. No, like, anything. And so there was at least one person who messaged me that they found out while they were in the autograph line that was not the Studio 4C Koji Morimoto. So imagine right. being a fan who you hear guest announcement, Koji Morimoto. Okay, great. Yeah, there's a description on the website that sort of, uh, if you read between the lines, you realize, okay, he is not the famous 4C director, but he is in fact a producer of anime who has the same name. Imagine if you were like, oh, I'm going to get all my 4C stuff. And then you find out like too late that uh, it's not him. Now, I will say this, even in the con guide for his Q&A panel, it just said Koji Morimoto Q&A, no description, nothing. Right. The only people who showed up was it was about 15 people, which again, this con has tens of thousands of people in attendance. And I think if they had just sort of said, okay, this is a guy who was the producer for this, this, and this, then you can get way more people. Um, in the case of Masaru Mariyama last year, you, we've said it for years, like, oh, only like 10 people show up, 15 people show up. Last year, everyone showed up because of Shirobako. They're like, oh, it's the guy who is in Shirobako. But right. the con didn't say, meet the guy who is the inspiration from Shirobako, Masaru Mariyama. No, they just, you know, the word kind of got out for him and him alone. But I think, you know, I just wish they would do this a little better because you can, with minimal effort, just put, like, the work they're most famous for with the Japanese name. Right. Under the dog, director, whatever. Or Code Geass, director. Exactly. Escafone, director. Looking back on, you know, exactly. All that kind of stuff. And so I, I just wish that they would do that because just the average fan sees Japanese name and it's like, I don't know who that is. And then they Mm -hmm. just don't go. And it's too bad because... These are obviously the most expensive guests it is to book. And so you'd think that they would do everything in their power to maximize what they can bring to the con. But we've said it for years, and uh, you know, hopefully someday uh, someone will hear and will take that into account. Well, they did finally do the badge mailing that people have been telling them to do for ages. How did that turn out, do you think? I think it was a literal lifesaver. It was a literal lifesaver. Daryl and I were arriving at the con, and we were like, hey, there's no one in line. Usually by the time we arrive, there's this line that is stretched around the convention center. At first, we thought like, oh shit, that means really bad things for their attendance. But no, it actually was that people just had gotten their badge. They didn't have to wait in line. Which, given how fucking hot it was... This year, the biggest story about this con will not be the fault of the con at all. It was the most miserable weather Otakon has either ever experienced. Oh my god, it was actually worse than Florida. Yeah, it uh, was the hottest, the most miserable that I've ever... And I've been going to this con longer than either of you two. I've been going since, I think, 2002 or so. 
and it was the worst I've ever experienced. Again, no fault of Oticon, but it's what people are going to remember. Yeah, so about 14 or 15 years. This is like hottest on record. Climate change, it's real, folks. I was getting like heat warnings over my phone about it. And again, we have horrific weather in Florida. But we also learn that you don't have to be outside for any amount of time in Florida. We learn to stay inside between about nine or ten and about four or five. At this con, you have to walk blocks to your hotel and it just wrecks you. You're right. And if you have to get food, if you have to go to your hotel. And so it's just a lifesaver to me because I think there would have been like multiple cases of like people getting heat exhaustion and heat stroke and stuff like that if they had to be out there in line waiting to pick up badges. So I'm really glad that they finally relented after what happened last year and said, okay, fine, we will mail the badges. And shock of shocks, it went... It worked. Incredibly well. There was not like this massive counterfeiting thing which was their concern for the longest time nope it just worked and so hopefully that will be the way things go from now on yeah so good job Oticon that was an excellent decision and it couldn't have happened at a better year yeah thank goodness holy crap it is rough that we were literally planning the entire convention about how do we not go outside how do we how do we get from this place to this place with not leaving the convention center or the hotel? Right. You'd and think- then it was kind of worse because with some of the construction and stuff, they had knocked out the some of the skywalks. Basically, trying to get from the convention center to the mall is the equivalent of a family circus Sunday comic where the little kid is trying to get from one location to the other. And you have to just wander around this weird zigzag of lines in order to find your way. And then you realize, oh, you just have to walk along the hottest stretch of path in order to get to the to the mall. So we, we try to avoid that as much as possible as well. Yeah, there is a lot of very intrusive construction going on, which I believe is part of the reason why Otakon is moving. Yeah, that it wasn't done in time. It wasn't done in time, and I understand it was going to be, you know, interfering with several years of the convention anyway, because I believe that they were upgrading, like, the whole arena and convention center. This is what I've been hearing. All that matters is that they upgrade that one stupid goddamn skywalk connecting the convention center to the Hilton Hotel. With the tiny stairway? That's the newest part of it, too. And that was the newest thing that they added on for the convention, and they built it that way. And so there was even a point on one of the days where they said, like, okay, that's unidirectional only, and everyone else has to go outside to go between the Hilton and the convention center. Well, guess I'm not going to any panels in the Hilton. (laughs) Yeah. It's it's amazing to me that they saw how horrible it is at the regular Skywalk that is, like, four people wide. And then they said, let's make one that is two people wide. Oh, my gosh. What else was going on at Otakon that is of interest? One of the neatest panels that we went to was LeSean Thomas. Yeah, it wasn't even a panel. That was like a premiere of a premiere, his yes. work, which was another thing. Like Under the Dog was crowdfunded through Kickstarter. LaShawn Thomas, who is, you know, an American. He's a director of uh, the Boondocks and Black Dynamite and stuff like that. Worked on The Batman, worked on Legend of Korra. Yeah. And so he did a crowdfund, a Kickstarter for a thing called Cannon Busters, which he made in conjunction with the anime studio Satellite. That got funded. And so he put together a pilot, like a 15 minute 
pilot that mm-hmm. premiering at, at the con. I guess the backers. This was the first time, and so this yeah. is the first time that non-backers had seen. Right, it, so. just like how under the dog, you know, like the backers had gotten it shortly before the premiere, which is how it should be. What mystified me was he's a big guest for a convention. This is one of your big premieres, and they put him in like one of the smallest panel rooms that the con <laughs> has. And yeah. to me. That seemed like incredibly strange because this con had a couple of premieres. It had Under the Dog and it had Gundam the Origin 3. And you would think that they would have put it in that same big upstairs ballroom. But no, they put it in a a tiny panel room. And of course, it filled up so much and a lot of people could not get in to see this thing. And I don't know what the politics are of I always know it's hard to schedule events and what have you. But it just seems to me like you've got like a marquee guest who is here to premiere his thing and Mm -hmm. you you should probably put him in a a, a bigger room. But anyway, we saw it and I thought it was great. I thought it was excellent. Uh, It is very interesting to see and hopefully we will have LaShawn Thomas on the show. Yeah, he did give us uh, his contact information and I never did text him because I was waiting for this episode to come out first because I didn't want to be like, oh yeah, we'll set this up a month from now. No, I figured I'd We will hopefully be able to talk with him. Thank you very much, Otakon, for letting us interview him, even though it was only 10 minutes. Right, it was the weirdest thing, because again, it was another one of those, like just like when you guys interviewed Fred Schott and we didn't actually post that audio because it was like over and done with so quick. It's not like I don't think he had things to go to or whatever, just the concept, like 10 minutes each person. I think it might have just been a function of how many people wanted to interview him. Mm-hmm. I know that's oftentimes a contributing factor, but uh, we will get probably a chance to talk to him in, in more depth here on a future episode of this podcast. That was excellent as well. Are there any more specifically guest-related things that you guys want to talk about or bring up? I don't think so, because like we were saying, there wasn't really that many... Um, things this major guests other than like uh, you know again I don't really watch the anime dub stuff so usually most of the dub voice actors I don't really go to see right and so that's a lot of the guests and then a lot of the musical acts again like you said were not like the most high profile musical acts they were like people who did like little things that you may have heard of but a lot of maybe one song for anime here and there yeah exactly And then there was the cosplay guest, which I don't really go see at all myself just because I'm not a cosplayer. And all the people who take those fancy photos will post them online anyway. So I actually almost never went down at that Pratt Street lobby once again, which is where like the video game room is. And that's I did miss that because I know the video yeah. game room is usually excellent. And I never went in there even one time. Yeah, that's pretty much so, it for guests as far as my side of it. Then the rest was just like going to programming. I think we should talk about some of the programming and specifically the panels. We were running, what's it, three panels? Four total. Maybe four. Let's just go through them because we did Forgotten Anime Openings. Yes, that was all three of us. Yep. And that was once again in the AMV theater, which is the best tech setup in maybe the smallest space. And it's interesting that it's the AMV theater because they do the AMV show, like that contest. That's like a huge event at Otakon. That's put in like that yeah. biggest room that I never even walked into. You know, once again, I've almost usually has never gone overflow in there. programming or usually has like an overflow room. And so, and that like fills the place. And then there's a separate AMV theater that's relatively small, but it's perfectly set up uh, from a text point of view for running videos. Right. I wish every panel room was set up like yeah, that. Yeah, we'll get to the tech setup in just a bit yeah. because I I really want those AMV guys to be like the main tech people for the whole 
con. I think that's a politics thing for every major con that the AMV people, if there is a separate AMV thing, live in their own kingdom that is separate yes. from the rest of the con. That's how AWA is also. But right. in this case, this would be something that I think they would do well to emulate, especially now that the tech requirements for modern running of panels kind of overlaps with a lot of the tech requirements for running AMVs in the modern form because it's all digital and uh, audio video related. But yes, our other panels, I had anime's appearances in non-anime. That was a Saturday night one. Yep, so this year it was the 18 plus version. Yes. Good thing too because I had jokingly found like, you know, one clip like as I was packing to go to convention saying, come to anime's appearance and not anime because Gerald's updated for this year. And I posted like a link to like a, <laughs> a, a porno Pokemon Go inspired clip because they're again, <laughs> cashing in on again, like we said, right as we record this, there's a current mania for Pokemon Go. And so uh, porno industry has to be timely and dress up women in Pokemon outfits as they have sex and then... <laughs> Uh, so, I mean, so it, was a, actually, it was a clean trailer. Yeah, it was a clean was a trailer because they post the trailer on like YouTube or whatever. And then you go to the site for the actual adult content. But went in the panel, which is great. <laughs> That's the sort of preparation that we pursue at the Anime World Order is just the sort of screw it. We're doing this right now. Change of plans. Yeah. And you had uh, Anime's Craziest Death. That's correct. And filled... I- Filled one of the biggest rooms there. Good job. Yep. Uh, you know, that was, again, I didn't realize preparing for it that I only had one hour. I That's my fault for not reading the confirmation email closely enough. I always assumed I get 90 minutes or two hours. And so I'm like, okay, I got to do 50% new material. Even though when I pull the room, it's like 80, 85% people never seen the panel before. And so I right. get to the con. I see like, oh, it's one hour. Okay, so now I have one hour of new footage of just the last two years because I took a year off on the grounds that, oh, there's not enough new clips. And it turns out now there there was like a whole bevy of new stuff. I could have just run JoJo's alone, but I opted to just do like <laughs> like a 20-second clip because it's like, oh, everyone knows what JoJo's Bizarre Adventure is. That is a phrase that if you go back to the previous episode of this podcast, you'd never imagine us saying everyone knows right. what JoJo's Bizarre Adventure is. But that's how things are in 2016. And so when I pulled the crowd and said like, okay, a ton of people haven't seen it. I was like on the fly deciding, okay, what are like some old ones to put in here? And it's like, okay, we have to have more helicopters exploding, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> right. I was trying to do the same for my panel was try to get mostly new footage. And then I also did 30 years ago, anime in 1986, which I am also probably going to convert into an article, which maybe by the time this episode comes out, um, maybe posted and true to the name. It's all about like, okay, well, it's 2016. Now, what were some of the notable anime from 30 years ago in 1986? 1986 is a particularly challenging year because if you talk to like the old timers who say like, oh, the 80s were like a golden age of sci-fi anime, they'll often single out 1986 as like one of like the top years, if not the top year. In the right, 1980s. a lot of stuff a- came out. A- 86, in 86. Is, 86, I could argue, is the greatest single year for anime. There were years that had maybe a single better work coming out, but just taken as a whole, I could easily argue this was the best year for anime it's ever been. Yeah, and so I was trying to show, like, okay, there's a lot of variety, like, you know, not just sci-fi, but shonen stuff and shoujo work and, you know, on down the line, you know, theatrical films. So it's a lot to get through in an hour. I thought I did pretty well. What's very interesting is uh, one of the one of my favorite movies came out that year, and that was uh, They Were Eleven. You showed a clip showing that the main character in that was actually, I don't know if the, the proper term for that would be trans, 
But I thought that that had an interesting effect on the crowd. Just think that this work from like 30 years ago. Written 40 years ago, even, because Motohagyo's manga was from 75 or so. Right. Right. Was addressing these things that are now only now becoming like really like hot a major topic issue. kind of like uh, issues, uh, and so we yeah. can actually we actually reviewed they were eleven in a past episode. You can hear us talk about that many many years ago. We reviewed that, but it is yeah. uh, the great thing about podcasting is that is all new if you haven't heard it before. Right, but, but I will say this, and this is probably the time to to mention this. It wasn't clear to people. Uh, when I was up on stage in front of like, you know, at least 800 some people, that's a big room, right? Yeah. I'm running the panel and I actually, <laughs> these panel rooms are, were not set up like the AMV theater in that oh my the gosh. AMV theater has a little LCD monitor that you can see what it is the audience is seeing. That's sitting on the desk sitting in on front the desk of you. in front of you. It just is a clone it's, of what's going out to the projector. So you it, can we, see. We call it a confidence monitor. So anything that is happening on the projector, you see yourself. And this is the under the circumstances. The I would like to see yes. implemented in panel rooms that is the most uncommon thing to see in panel rooms. Right. right. People like look at you like you're insane if you ask for this. If you mention this. it <laughs> yes in most other panel rooms what they would do is you'd be up on stage on a table and a projector screen would be off to your side and so the only way that you could see what the audience is seeing is to tilt your head these rooms were so big for one the projector screen is directly behind me so it was impossible for me to see the screen so what i ended up doing was like this makeshift prison technology i took out like my <laughs> ipad and left it off because I have a screen protector on it that's reflective and I just kind of set it up so I could use it as a makeshift mirror so I could see the screen behind me and then like uh, adjust from there but yeah I was completely blind and so when I was reading the feedback it's all like and the same thing for anime in 1986 by the way and it's the same thing like some people were saying like oh yeah he's really good at like talking and contextualizing the clip that's being played and nobody realizes that like I'm literally have no idea what people are seeing other than just the experience of preparation for the panel. It's like, okay, we're and, about here now. And then I'm looking at the backwards image off of the iPad because <laughs> no, under normal circumstances, why would you take out an iPad if you also have a laptop in front of you? It's like, it would make no sense, but that's the reason why I'd like to bring up my panel, anime and non-anime. The projector was off to my right and right in the way are the speakers. So I cannot actually see the screen. You can't even turn your head to look and see the screen. And multiple times during the panel, I hit a button because Zoom Player, unfortunately, is the only thing we can use for these sorts of things. And it brought up like a file. A file browser. A, yeah, a file browser thing. Overlay. And I had to, and I, I, I didn't know this until Daryl and Clarissa in the audience said, hey, 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 you got something on the screen. Because I and can't see the fucking screen. And it's fascinating because this happened... Not just to fan panels. This happened to industry as well. It happened to right stuff. It happened to vertical. Down the line, there you can't were these see the screen. You might as well put the screen in another room at that point because that is how difficult it is to conduct a panel. Mike Tool works in AV, and so he kind of said it's the switcher thing that they had. They're using it for a purpose that it's not designed for. What I sort of found out because I actually had to resolve this about three or four times for no, I didn't do it myself. I assisted in resolving this tech fixed it. Let's just make that clear. But in identifying, hey, the issue is that your switcher thing is reporting like the wrong resolution and refresh rate, et cetera, et cetera, to everyone's laptops. And that's not the same as the native resolution of your projector. There were some rooms where if it wasn't matched up, you'd get 
a black screen because one of the panels that I went to and it was really good was the Gundam shorts panel run by Tom. Yes. Uh, and he did a lot of work. Like he is a Gundam fan and he went and he found like not just Gundam shorts that people had seen, but he went and found ones that had never been subtitled before. A lot of times were barely even posted online and he manually subtitled these things himself. Yeah. And so he went to that much trouble and then he lost like 15, 20 minutes because of this issue and bearing in mind Otakon has 15 minutes of setup time between it so that means it took him 30 minutes to get this resolved and it kept happening over and over again like i said right stuff i think they lost most of their you know what they were going to present because of this vertical you know uh, ed chavez they were doing a panel on like you know the greater ugly manga and they lost a lot of time to this as well. So, you know, again, even knowing what it was, it took most of my 15 minutes to set up before Anime 1986 to resolve it because there were two things that happened. One, you'd either get no screen whatsoever. Two, you'd get image, but your picture would be cut off such that the subtitles would be chopped off at the bottom and no one could see them because you'd only see like the very top of the first line or like it would be like the top bottom left and right would be cut off. And so people were doing PowerPoint presentations and like the first few words of the text of each of your slide items would be cut off. And you would think that the crowd would yell and say something. No, the crowd did not typically yell and say something. And so you'd never know without being able to see with that conference monitor, hey, something is wrong with my presentation. I actually had a different problem in that my presentation is 16 by 9, and it would come up as a squashed 16 by 9. I needed that full 15 minutes to go through different resolutions to find one that worked with this stupid projector. and. Right. And they had to, like, adjust it for me and twist it around. I said, no, I can't do it this way. My clips come from movies. My clips come from modern TV. These are all widescreen uh, clips. I need it to be 16 by 9. Yeah, and eventually we did get it. But it's just one of those things where I would imagine, and these are not the faults of anyone presenting. Like, this is purely the equipment that's here. You can spend the, the entire year getting ready for this and then... It'd be completely be done screwed in up. by external forces to yourself. Right. And one thing was that the tech guys often couldn't identify there was an issue. Like in the case of mine, I would play a clip that had subtitles on it because I had picture and I was like, oh, it's actually the wrong aspect ratio or, oh, it's actually being cut off. I had to identify that and fix it because they can't tell that. I will say this, that the problem seemed to be way worse for people who had Mac than PC but yeah. uh, it happened for everyone. Yes. I don't know if there's a single panel that started smoothly that used a computer, because every single one of them seemed to have setup issues. The only yeah. one, that, Yeah, like every single time. Because was... all those rooms that didn't have the AMV theater set up, they all yes. were using a unified equipment. Mm -hmm. And whatever that thing was, that box was like the weak link in that. So please, Otakon, what we request, buy a 15 or $20 LCD screen, put it on the desk in front of us, and also please put a audio mixer up there as well. Because Maybe the audio mixer thing might be a, a union kind of deal. The thing is, is that the guy, the tech guy wasn't responsive when I tried to talk and say, because usually if I want to talk over a video playing, I recognize that, you know, I can't have it at the same volume. I have to turn it down so people can hear me. It's weird when, you know, a little con over here that we go to has a better setup than Otakon does. And I hate to say it, Otakon, but you got to get this fixed. This is not just us. Every single panel that had computers in them had problems. 
Tech issues aside, we did say that we kind of spent a lot of time going to panels. Oticon in particular has now got the reputation as being like the premier fan panel convention, maybe not just on the East Coast, but in the United States. Is that Mm -hmm. fair to say? I think so. Definitely is either the number one or number two of those, because we just hear that the West Coast doesn't have fan panels. Right. I think they have so much of an industry presence, I guess. Right. That they don't even, even the setups that we're talking about here at Oticon as being like having problems, that's still quantum leaps higher than what the West Coast will provide for fan panels. Like, you know. They put a projector in the middle of the room with no no, with cables, no wires or cables like or anything. Yeah. Just you have to no, no figure no it out. Chairs. No chairs. No screen. Yeah, like all that kind of stuff. Um, that actually happened. But like, you know, when you look at the list of their live events, their panel roster, I really want to point out two things. One is that it's a huge list of things. It's just immense. It's got to be like really hard for people to approve things. And I also would like to point out that Oticon stays on task to their mission statement. Like that was awesome. Almost everything is anime related. Almost everything is Asian pop culture in some form or fashion. It's very, very easy given the modern media landscape to say, all right, what sells tickets? What are people fans of Western media, cartoon network stuff? We can load up with that. Even Oticon was very stringent in their screening. So it's like, yes, there's a Steven Universe panel, but it's about the anime references in Steven Universe specifically. Awesome job, guys. That was terrific. So. Right. There was a bit of controversy among us that how did you know the Gamergate panel get approved like, like 1 a.m.? But I think that might have just been because the person who's approving it may not have known. I didn't go to it. I didn't want to publicize it. But yeah, that was a little strange that that got on there. But everything else, even Teen Wolf, <laughs> Clarissa's favorite, you know, that had a <laughs> panel where it was... Not just the Teen Wolf panel, but how does it tie into Japanese myth and folklore? But I understand from people who dared attend it that the panelists kind of threw together a BS pitch to get approved because it was minuscule about how it ties into anime or Japanese culture. And it was really just like, we love Teen Wolf. And um, yeah, they can't know that until they, they start. They can't know that until it starts, but at least... And then they won't be back next year, so... Yeah, to screen <laughs> right. out the ridiculous stuff. Though it is interesting, like, how many Gundam panels there were at this yeah. convention there seemed to be quite a few yeah there were a lot this year and it's interesting because gundam is i guess it's having a resurgence i mean there's a big story now that iron-blooded orphans is on tv again there's a resurgence in interest in gundam they're now selling gundam model kits in bookstores now and they may actually after all these years get back in toys r us we'll see how that goes but it is on the uptick but i there were at least like for the panels i went to on gundam they were different because such a big topic the gundam shorts one was just specifically about that then there was the overview that lauren orsini did along with her co-host whose name escapes me just going through like the yeah. 30, you know, seven different shows or whatever it was. I wish I had caught more of that. The part that I was there for was quite yeah. good. Mm-hmm. Uh, very good, like PowerPoint summations of like one or two slides that just like sums up everything. My favorite was the Gireko <laughs> one. Yoshiyuki c- comes out of retirement. Yoshiyuki Tomino comes out of retirement to confuse everybody. <laughs> That's a su- summary yep. of Gireko. Exactly what it needs to be. But yeah, I mean... Lots and lots of really interesting stuff. One that I was interested in is that they oftentimes do an Asian action cinema or Hong Kong film 
panel and the people running it each year are really knowledgeable folks. Every time I go, it's not like it's necessarily something I don't know, but it's like I do not object to any of this. These guys know what they're talking about. So this mm-hmm. year it was after the handover, the best ones made after 1997. And 1997 is significant because Hong Kong reverted back to China rather than being a British colony or commonwealth or whatever the term is and so and then it was under their chinese government regulations and it was interesting because i was like oh well i'd like to go to this panel because i can only think of a few and strangely enough most everything they named at least from the um the action side of things was like the ones i already knew about the one or two that i hadn't heard about were mostly like romance drama stuff which has always been like a huge staple of hong kong cinema that I just never paid attention to because it's romance and why have romance when you can have guns and romance. (laughs) (laughs) It's still a good panel. But again, what struck me as telling for that one was that they spent a lot of time just talking without showing clips, which seemed like in my estimation, it seemed like, oh, okay, it's because they only have a finite number of films after 1997 to showcase. And this is a way to save time to like account for that or it could be that they just didn't want to talk over video like i do because it's kind of distracting when i do it but i don't care our friends Other- also kate and carl ran a very popular panel about dogs and anime yes I, no one knew I, it was a very enjoyable I had new idea that that's what the panel is going to be about from the title and it was so funny because <laughs> like kate was like it's so obvious you can't tell but the title of the panel was such dog much anime wow because there's a internet meme called a doge which is like you know this picture of this what is it a shiba inu or whatever yeah it's japanese yes yeah the japanese dog and people like put captions for like this and so people thought like oh is it just about the meme of the dog but no it was in fact about dogs in anime i couldn't go to it because i was opposite my uh, 1986 panel but one thing she noted and you can hear this if you go to the anagamers podcast where she was on it again to the tech issue Yes, you can manually adjust the volume yourself on the computer, but if you don't take explicit measures, everyone's going to see you doing it because it'll pop up on the screen like here's the volume meter over your video that you're playing, um, which happened to her. And she didn't know it because she had no monitor to see what's going on. Exactly. Um, But uh, yeah, everyone said that panel was good. I did not go because I was doing my own thing. But I assume uh, if you like much anime and such dog, you would watch it and say, wow. (laughs) <laughs> um, what, what other stuff on the list did you go to that you either liked or thought was terrible? Well, I know we had mentioned the ugly manga panel. I had seen that at a previous convention and it was still very good. I think there wasn't quite as much additional material as I hoped for. Yeah. Um, but still very interesting about kind of good manga that's very ugly. And so our friend Evan and Vince did a panel on science and anime. That was quite good. Yes. Uh, I enjoyed it quite a bit. They also were in that scenario where you're running clips and it's already hard enough in these panel rooms where the projector is at one level such that if people are sitting, you know, you're not going to be able to see the subtitles over people's heads. All cons seem to be vulnerable to this. I'm not sure why it might just be an issue of how large stands for projectors can be but then they were also like doubled over because of the tech issue where it would cut off the subtitles and so they were relying on the subtitles to explain what the science part of it was but evan did an interesting thing that he saw his favorite show the perfect insider and i'm just kidding he doesn't really care for that show but the end credits of it 
he used like computer science to say like, oh, this is generated using this program that went open source on GitHub. And so here, let me show you guys how it works. People were either bored to death by that part because it's not the science and anime <laughs> that they want to care about, like computer science. And like one or two people thought it was cool. But by and large, it seemed like a lot of the crowd were just like, oh, boring. And it's like, you know, even at the science it. and anime, <laughs> I liked it because, well, my degree yeah. is computer science so i'm like okay this is cool but i was just gauging the crowd and looking at some of the comments and people were like oh what is this that does bring uh, up another quick point and this is not something otakon can control but the acoustics for whatever panel room you're going to be in you can't control that if you're showing a clip that relies on people hearing what they're saying i learned my lesson the hard way last year at my last anime and non-anime panel and i had to subtitle a large portion of my clips myself just so people could mm. understand what anybody was saying. I don't know if that helped or not. Yeah, most of the clips that I run are just in Japanese with English subtitles anyway. For your particular panel, it's English. Yes. So, you know, if you need to hear what they're saying. So I have to subtitle. For Anime's Craziest Deaths, I oftentimes run the dub just because it's funnier, but it's not like vitally important that you understand every word that people are saying. But yeah, in cases like that. Uh, yeah, that's something I learned the hard way. And uh, yeah, it's a shame that some of those subtitles got cut off, especially when people work so hard because subtitling's not easy. Right. What other things did you guys go to? Yeah, unfortunately, there was a lot of things that I wanted to make it to. I caught some, not all, of the Mechapocalypse panel, yep. which was pretty entertaining. Yeah, that, that's an interesting one because it was, like, again, a general mecha panel. Yeah. Uh, again, pretty full room. What interested me is that everybody who was presenting was actually not white, so you didn't get the weird Nazism <laughs> that sometimes <laughs> runs throughout some of these mecha panels. Maybe that was in, like, some of the other Gundam panels I didn't go to. One of the guys who runs that is for Anime Rest Stop, and so they follow us on Twitter, and I met him, and he was pretty cool. But, again, it's one of those things where you're at the con, and it's like, hey, you're so-and-so, I am a big fan, but I am going to my panel that's about to start right now okay i gotta go to see you and that was about right, as much right. as i <laughs> saw him which was kind of the story for the con so there was an interesting panel on the uh, fukushima yes nuclear plant that was fascinating because the people who did it were actually two things one their con staff and two yes. they did the panel five years ago when the thing first happened i didn't know this but the main like interpreter guy taka his day job is like he translates like really technical things like in literally like nuclear reactor manual type stuff and so he was right. on site so at he was Fukushima there when it happened but and he wasn't an employee and so he isn't bound by the ndas so you can talk about whatever talk about the other guy too he works he's a nuclear technician he's the head of press at AWA and stuff like that, Victor. So these were and fascinating. So, these people knew what they were talking about. That's right. uh, great. And they were like anime, long-time anime people. I also didn't know that until I went to the Otakon Museum, the talk is the chair of Otakon Las Vegas. And oh. so, you know, that guy's a busy guy being like this super high-level interpreter and also chairing con and escaping this nuclear disaster. But yeah, that panel was really good. That's a perfect example of the absolute best people who you could possibly have presenting it. And so they kind of showed up and they played like a video that was pre-made to sort of summarize sort of what happened. And then they just kind of went into like, these are the failure points. And this is what people have learned and haven't. They did like sort of then and now because they did the panel once five years ago back when it happened. So that was really interesting. I had to leave a little early because I had to get ready for my own stuff. But, right. Um, I don't want to complain about it too much because I know that the scheduling for an event like this just must be horrendous, but I feel like I didn't really get to go to very many panels just because 
just the way the schedule worked out, it seemed like a lot of the things that I wanted to go to were scheduled at the same time. I actually didn't have that issue this year as much as previous years. Like normally it seemed that in previous years it'd be like, oh, this is opposite this, opposite this. And in this case, it didn't seem that way. It just seemed like because of the heat and because of some other logistics stuff that it seemed like I only went to a few things. For like other uh, reasons other than, oh, wow, I'd like to go to this, this and this, but they're all happening at the same time. I felt like that didn't happen to me this year, even though there's tons and tons of stuff going on. Right. There was some of that, too, that I just wasn't feeling well that weekend and with the heat and everything. But th- there were definitely a good number of blocks where it's like, OK, well, there's like now like three panels happening at the same time that I'm interested in. And then, like, the next, like, two or three panel blocks are nothing that I want to go right. to. That seems to be so. something every year at Oticon, and I guess at least it wasn't like it was a couple of years ago, where Oticon had three Gundam panels or two or three Gundam panels, and they all happened at the same at the time. the exact same time <laughs> as one another. Right. So that's not I like... mean, I'm sure it's probably unavoidable yes. to have conflicts, because you don't know what every individual person is going to be interested in, and so... And also, when you just look at the sheer number of panels and the sheer number of rooms, like logistically wise, it's just immensely complicated to do. Right. I'd also like to throw out some props. This isn't something that we've explicitly like seen a lot of in certainly not anime conventions, but I want to throw big props to the Otakon press staff, especially for their, you know, they were talking about, you know, when you do uh, questions with guests and such, they were saying things like, well, you can submit questions ahead of time. It is convenient. It is not required. Because in this country, we have freedom of the press. They specifically went and said, you don't have to like have your questions pre-screened. You don't have to have it get like a final approval once it's done. If you want to, as a courtesy, you can, but it's not yes. a must. And this is like the only convention I've seen that will abide by that. Everyone else will be mm-hmm. like, they'll totally roll on that. But I guess since Otakon is like, listen, we're the biggest con on this it's part of the country. I would like to see other cons do that, but I think their concern is, oh, well, you know, we, we just won't bring our guests this next time or whatever. But right. fuck them then. This is the biggest audience they've got. Fuck them. Because I appreciate Otakon <laughs> saying we have a freedom of the press here. They can ask what the fuck they want and you can't stop them. I hate that. The controlled, like, pre-screen things. You can only ask about this. Don't yes. ask anything about that, even though it's something they worked on. Th- there was none of that at Otakon. If you wanted to ask Kazuki Akane about Heat Guy J, I'm sure you could uh, g- go for it. There wasn't right. no, like, this is only... You have to ask us you. about this particular thing that we are promoting, so you are just a tool of our marketing, effectively. Like, fuck that. I feel like I spent more at the dealer's room this year than I typically spend, partially because of the discotheque table and also because of the Tamashi Nations booth. I did not actually buy anything from Good Smile because they didn't have stuff that I particularly wanted, but I did see that they were selling out stuff fairly reasonably. I do want to bring up on the subject of why I spent so much at the discotheque table is because they're a company I tend to like to support. Just as a disclaimer, I've done like some commentary tracks and stuff for them. In the, so keep that in mind as I say this stuff. But Mike Tool, he did their industry panel. And that, I think, is like the only industry panel I ever bothered to go to because there's yeah. no yep. point in going to the announcement panel from Funimation or Biz or or like whoever else, because they all are kind of presented badly. And so Mike was like, he felt this way for many years. And so he said, okay, let me present your industry panel for you guys. And I thought it came off really, really well. 
Discotech also will break streak date for a lot of things at the dealer's room. So I like to pay them directly so they don't have to get like the Amazon cut. And I also get stuff early. So I got like Street Fighter Blu-rays and what have you. And soon right. yeah, was, uh, 13 on Blu-ray. Really great. It's always entertaining to, to see the Discotech panels because the announcements are actually things that are really neat and exciting. Right. Well, and also talk about like some of the details of like all the different things that they cobbled together for some of these releases, like which old dubs that they were able to get and how much restoration work they were able to do and all that kind of stuff, especially for things that it's like, oh, I already own this already. Why should I buy it again? They kind of know that there's uh, that market for it. And so they'll say, okay, well, this time we're going to add this, this, and this that wasn't in the previous release, you know, right. so that sort mm-hmm. of stuff, which is great. I, I like that because it makes it seem like they're not like a faceless corporation. Right. Because, I mean, I have nothing against the Sentai panel saying, saying like, oh, we're going to release this new show and that new show, because that's exactly what people expect. They're great. That's perfectly fine. I guess Discotech just has the, because of their market is completely different, they can surprise people more with it. Yeah, Right, right Stuff actually, and another disclaimer, because Right Stuff's yes. a sponsor, but I mean, I think they also have a very similar sort of approach to their panels, because yes. Sean Kleckner does not give a fuck. Nope. And like, you know, <laughs> if people ask you a stupid question, you're going to get told in front of everybody. He don't care. That's the way, he's the dark lord. You know, exactly. Exactly. Um, but again, yeah, like, and they had some great announcements one. too. Uh, was it yes. uh, that Turn A Gundam is getting a Blu-ray release? And on top of that, it, if you it's bought pretty the cool. DVDs already, you can trade in. Uh, that's trade a cool. Up. That's cool. That's cool. I like to see that. Yeah. Good job there. I still feel like I must have hallucinated the fact that they're releasing Charge Man Ken. Yeah, that Discotech, oh, right? Discotech, yes. <laughs> Mike Tool, uh, he did the worst anime of all time for the last time. He's retiring that panel because he feels like he's done enough. He wants someone else to take over. And he always runs Charge Man Ken. And then right after that worst anime of all time, he's like, and we're licensing Charge Man Ken. And guess what? I'm buying Charge Man Ken now. But <laughs> my concern, uh, and I told this to Mike on the last podcast I was on with the ANN cast, he always opens his panel like a few days before the con. He throws out on Twitter, what's the worst anime you've ever seen? And he gets a ton of responses. And he takes all these responses and puts them into his opening PowerPoint slide of like, here's a list of titles that people tell me of what's the worst anime they've ever seen. And that's his opening. And he says, well, guess what? It's none of the above. It's what I've got. And my concern is that whoever does like the bad anime panel in the future is not going to do that same due diligence. And they're just going yeah. to pick like they're just going to oh, pick things that are piece just a garbage called golf horse, you know, and right. Whatever, you know, that sort of thing. <laughs> going to be the, the internet shoutman version of it. Yeah, which so I'm it, which not is, looking forward to. So hopefully whoever inherits that matrix of leadership is going maybe, to keep it real. And maybe, maybe find should. like some new stuff that hasn't been done to death, because that's the work. That's the challenge, is what hasn't been driven into the ground. And so a lot right. of people will argue, like, oh, that 80s OAV stuff has been run to the ground, and maybe there's some room for, like, some bad 2000s productions at this point. And maybe, but, you know, again, what I found in the past is that no matter what, when you run, like, those 2000s things, someone will defend the real <laughs> garbage stuff. It's tough as well because it's very much like the bad dubbing sort of stuff in that the bad stuff that was made like 30 years ago was made like under a scenario like under an industry where like the supervision levels of checks of right. like pro- the, producer involvement wasn't there as much and so right. you could- that's that stuff is rarely made today like it is a rarity where you see something where 
there literally isn't in between animation or the colors are completely wrong for this or like it's it's really hard to find yeah like the technical proficiency is at least a much higher baseline such as you're not going to get like these like leo the lion kind of like terrible <laughs> dubbing efforts or, yeah i you mean know. you get your occasional school city valinor yeah, or but... i mean we're talking we're still talking about gundu musashi and that is over 10 years old now and that was one of the last productions of that level that just is that escaped the production process it's rare so that would be a hard panel to keep going without repeating yourself ad nauseum and speaking of i guess uh, we're just about over an hour on this we'll probably cut it down <laughs> So we can get to the review of this. Unless we have any final thoughts on Otakon 2016. Uh, you looking forward to DC? Yes or no? We just booked our rooms. What are our initial thoughts on Otakon in DC and our final thoughts on Otakon in Baltimore? Wasn't their strongest year. Wasn't their worst. Was a very sort of average year for Otakon in Baltimore. DC, I have no idea what to expect. It's new for us. It's weird because there seem to be fewer hotels that are close to the con and then a whole bunch of hotels that are like two miles away. So I'm not sure what to expect. Yeah. No, there has been no anime convention that's been held at this convention center. That's another thing I'm, I'm interested in what we will be seeing there and whatever we experience that we're going to be experiencing it for the next five or six years. Yeah, I mean, hopefully it'll it'll work out. I'm not familiar with uh, that particular convention center yeah. or area. But the few people I know who have been there said it's a perfectly good convention center. So we'll see if President Hillary stops by during the con. <laughs> the important thing is that there's a Nando sufficiently close by. <laughs> I, I hope it's not that we can get to. Is that there's a Bojangles sufficiently close by. And so, I have seen Popeyes. But there is a Bojangles, but... according to the map. Oh, Which okay. is crazy because they shut down all the Bojangles in our area. And Bojangles is a southern fried chicken chain that is delicious. So we have to go north to find it. I, for one, would close by saying, yeah, I agree that it was not the worst Otakon, not the greatest Otakon in history, but even an average Otakon is still very likely to be one of the best conventions that you'll attend for any given year. And so I yeah. will certainly be back next time because there's a lot that goes on there that other cons would do well to replicate. They have their own unique set of problems, some of which are based on just by virtue of how large and massive an operation they are. There is a good bit of inertia in a lot of things. Talked for many years about the reticence to mailing the badges, et cetera, et cetera. But sure. um, part of that is just institutional related stuff. I think as a fan, it's definitely worth going to. I personally don't really have a huge desire to attend Anime Expo from everything I hear about it, but Otakon is one that I'll go to each year just because there's stuff to do. Expo seems to be like there's people to see, like concerts to attend or what have you, lines to stand in. <laughs> I'm not going to say that Otakon doesn't have lines to stand in, but it just seems like it's not your entire day. And it's yeah, not it's the true. line con? So. Yeah, it, while it's true that I have panelists, stuff like that, but the things that I wanted to attend... By and large, I did not cut through with a press badge or whatever to say, like, oh, I got to get in here. Most everything was just like, you want to show up, you just walk in. And that's kind of like my experience, because the last thing I like to do is be sitting around doing nothing. And at least we weren't doing it outside. Hopefully the weather Ooh. in D.C. will not be 
worse, though I understand that DC downtown is also a concrete jungle that is not yeah. uh, right by the inner harbor like it was like Baltimore this year. You would think that being that close to the water would have helped. It did not. Nope. Um, it was the wind blew and it was like being in front of a hairdryer. So right. it was it was <laughs> awful. Yeah. Oh, my think, God. Uh, the, the I mean, when the wind thing, blows in Florida, it's still cool. It's actually right. cool breeze. So. Looking back on uh, Oticon's time in Baltimore, I think I can uh, look back and proudly say that at no point did I ever eat at the Jimmy John's. That's like, <laughs> you know, the otaku equivalent of being a gray knight and a space marines. Like, not once did any fall to the chaos. I, not once did I eat at the Jimmy John's. Also, <laughs> I walk, I, like a block further and Potbelly's is right there and it's better. I think that there's a liar in our podcast, Mitz. Her name is Kate, and she's been telling me about this food truck that sells crab cakes. Crab cakes. That I have never seen, ever. I think she is dreaming about this. Everyone else, I think they said they went to it, but it's like it's parked outside yeah. of uh, like a different hotel than we go to. And so that's why <laughs> we may have never seen it. Uh, I would have, not I would that have I would liked to crab cake. I would, but I am, it's, it's sad that uh, I, I never got to try out this place. Who knows what we will see in Washington, D.C.? I'm guessing there'll be some growing pains the first year. Anyway, before we move on to our review this episode, I just want to remind everyone that this episode of the Anime World Order podcast is brought to you by RightStuffAnime.com. We've mentioned in the past that Right Stuff is the place to go for the lowest prices on a lot of the best anime, but I actually want to talk about the publishing arm of Right Stuff, Nozomi Entertainment slash Lucky Penny. They are going to be releasing season two of Big Windup. We reviewed the first season of Big Windup back in 2008. Funimation released it, did not do well for them, was probably one of their worst selling titles in history, such that when they go to panels and you ask Funimation, hey, what are things that you may want to license? They'll say we aren't going to license sports anime, and that was because they took a huge bath on things like Big Windup. But Nozomi Entertainment will be releasing the second season. So if lately you've been finding yourself watching more sports anime, stuff like High Q, Kuroko's Basketball, you know we got an upcoming rugby anime called All Out, which probably refers to the buttocks of the main characters. If that is your wheelhouse, I urge you to consider pre-ordering Big Windup season two, and the place to do it is at R I G H T stufanime.com and even though they're our sponsor you don't have to take my word for it shop around see if you find a better price but my guess is most of the time you're not going to find a better price than what they've got over at rightstuffanime.com I guess we should actually talk about some anime now, maybe. As we mentioned earlier, I'm going to be talking about a show called Erased. The original Japanese title is Boku Dake Gai Naimachi. And this ran uh, really at the beginning of this year, um, started in, I think, January, and then ran through, like, March or so. Now, does Boku Dake Gai Naimachi translate to Erased, or did, does it mean something totally different? <laughs> no, it kind of... 
it's like a town where I like don't exist because like Bokudake is like only me, and then like Inai is like to not exist, um, and Machi is like a town. There's a point in the series where um, one of the kids writes a story. They have a thing for class that they write a story, and her story is the is Bokudake guy and Machi. And it's basically about how, like, she wants to kind of go away. So I I can see how the context of erase, like, works in the sense of, like, a person being erased. It also works in the sense that, as I'll talk about shortly when we talk about what the series is about, about kind of trying to go back and erase certain things from happening. So this uh, was a pretty short show. It was only 12 episodes. Um, it's like one episode longer than most Noitamina shows then, because most of them are 11. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I actually don't know if I feel like it could have used more episodes or not. Like, on the one hand, I feel like the 12 episodes kind of kept everything on track. But there probably are a few things that I wish had maybe gotten a little bit more detail at the end. I think, I guess, if you have to err on one side or the other, I think it's better to err on keeping things tight and concise. Right. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad that they didn't really, like, waste a lot of time with stuff. There wasn't tons and tons of episodes that they had to fill. Yeah. uh, Where it was obvious that they were kind of just stalling. So that's definitely an advantage. I know that the manga like is relatively short, like maybe seven or eight volumes, and that I know they were working with the author because that final it wasn't finished. Yeah, it was unfinished time, right? when the anime started, yeah. and so they had to work to make sure that okay, we're gonna end pretty much the same way that the manga ends. So it's a, like the final episode of the anime kind of coincided with the release of the final manga volume. Huh. Okay. And so yeah, I haven't read any of the manga, so I. I wasn't sure how different it was. I mean, I've heard a couple people who've seen them, who've read some of the manga comment on it, but um, I didn't really read anything that went into a lot of detail about the similarities and differences. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can't speak to that as part of this review. But uh, yeah, so 12 episodes, and the story is a thriller with like a slight, I don't know if you want to call it a supernatural element or a sci fi element. It's not really explained such that you can you know pinpoint exactly what the reason for it is but the story is follows a guy named Satoru Fujinuma and at the beginning of the series he's a young adult um he's worked as a a manga author but he's not really super successful he's struggling a little bit producing something that his editor thinks is is really authorial self-insert this is the fate of all manga (laughs) authors is that you write every single manga author eventually every one of them has to write it without exception yeah i mean i guess eventually you have to vent your frustration somehow right (laughs) the supernatural and or sf element that i mentioned is that satoru happens to have this ability where every once in a while he experiences this thing where something usually bad is going to happen and he will reverse backwards in time slightly and have sort of a sense of like deja vu and be able to hopefully figure out like what's happened and, you know, stop something bad from happening. So at the very beginning, the way that they illustrate this the first time is that he's, um, he works part time at a, a pizza delivery place 
and he is driving down the road on his little scooter and a large um, semi-truck is passing by and he sees, he gets this sense that something is wrong, things reverse slightly, and it turns out that the driver of the truck has um, passed out. I think that they may say that it was like a heart attack or something, um, but the driver is passed out at the wheel and the truck is possibly going to hit a small child that's in the road. And so because he reverses, he calls it revival. Um, he's able to get up alongside the truck and pull the wheel to the side such that it does not hit the small child. Um, unfortunately, uh, he does get slightly injured, although not, not badly. It's never explained how this ability works or why he has it. It's just kind of a thing. And it allows the rest of the story to go forward. Shortly into the series, his mom comes to visit and he is reminded of some cases of child disappearances that happened in the small town in Hokkaido that he grew up in. Because I think that there's some like news reports about um, some other child that's gone missing. And he and his mom are out going shopping, and he experiences revival again and is trying to figure out what's going on. His mother sees what she thinks might be a guy that was attempting to kidnap a, a child. And probably because she notices him, the guy leaves without doing anything, but she uh, takes a picture of the license plate. And she kind of is also remembering this stuff that happened before because when Satoru was a kid, the person who was arrested for kidnapping these children was a local guy that Satoru would hang out with sometimes. And, you know, a kind of young single guy hanging around with kids. People thought it was weird. And so he was kind of an easy suspect. But Satoru always insisted that the guy had not done it. Now, with this, his mom is kind of thinking, well, maybe he was right. And so she kind of starts looking into it because his mother used to be a reporter. So she's kind of starting to, like, look into things a little and trying to figure out some stuff about maybe this guy that she saw that might have been trying to abduct this kid. And it looks like she may be, you know, about to get some information or may have just gotten some information. And someone attacks her and stabs her. And Satoru comes home and finds his mom stabbed in his apartment and freaks out. And unfortunately, a neighbor happens by um, just as he's, you know, found the body and now, of course, has blood all over his hands. And of course, nobody um, thinks to ask, thinks beyond you know, exactly what they see. Yeah, right. It's right. just like the opening <laughs> of the dagger comedy. And by the way, this is all the opening part of the show. We haven't really like delved yeah. too yeah. deeply into this it. This is for like those the wondering. first like episode or two, like very, right. very, be very beginning setup. And so, yeah, so the the neighbor freaks out um, and calls the police and the police show up and the police think, well, your mom stabbed in your apartment, you've got blood on your hands, and so they're wanting to question him, and, you know, he's freaking out, and he is, you know, wanting to, to get away, so he starts to try to run, and revival happens. 
And now normally when he experiences this, it's a few seconds, maybe a minute or two. But this time he slowly realizes at first he's very disoriented because he's in a completely different place, um, which is not usually what happens. But he soon figures out that he's actually gone back 18 years uh, to the time when he was in elementary school and when this original set of abductions or disappearances occurred. And I believe so, it's 1988, 87, 88? Yeah, somewhere around then, late 80s. Yeah. His hope is that since he's there, maybe he can stop these kidnappings from happening and that maybe if that happens, then hopefully it will eventually have the effect of also making his mom not get murdered. <laughs> this is the decision that he embarks upon, um, that he makes. And so he embarks upon this effort to try to save these other kids. And the first girl that disappeared was a classmate of his named Kayo. And he remembers from when he was a kid that he had seen her alone in the park in the evening um, before she had disappeared. And you find out pretty shortly in that basically she is being abused um, by her mom. And so she was out alone a lot because she didn't want to go home. And she also didn't really have any friends, um, partially probably because she was kind of secretive about the abuse. And so the first thing that he determines is that he's going to make sure that she's not as isolated. And so he starts to try to make friends with her. But he also has to try to figure out if he is sure that this guy that was originally arrested for the crime, um, his friend Yuki, didn't do it, then he also needs to figure out, well, who was the culprit? So it's basically, you know, this combination of him developing this relationship with this girl who's being abused and also them trying to figure out uh, who is the one that was kidnapping these kids and stop it from happening. And that's the basic setup. From there, it goes on, and it, it goes back and forth a little bit between the present day, when Satoru was an adult, and the um, late 80s, when he was a kid. This is a one of the rarest genres that you see in anime, in that this is... Do you mean like the thriller An, an adult, An adult thriller, yes. Right. Well, I think that's it's part of why the they're thing. turning it into live action, because usually these kind of works, they end up being made into J-drama or what have you. This one's actually yeah. becoming uh, a feature-length film. Yeah, and I'd be interested in seeing how that works out. The The director of yeah, this... Yeah, like how they can fit everything in to yeah. a single movie runtime. The director of this, Tomohiko Ito, uh, had worked on quite a bit of Monster which when I think of like other anime thrillers is one of the only other ones that comes to well, mind. Well, Death Note, I think, yeah. is the other one. And I think Ito worked on Death yeah. Note also somehow. Yes, he was he one did, of the directors on yeah, Death he's Note. he's worked on a bunch of stuff. Um, he worked on Anohana. He worked on... Um, Sword Art Online. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he's on storyboard for a lot of stuff, and he's done like episode director and unit director for a bunch of stuff. Yeah. Um, like... He did episode director stuff on Monster, episode on a Neuro Supernatural Detective. Um, definitely got his Academy. chops in thrillers, and that's great, because I'd like to see, definitely see more stuff like this in anime. I mean, this show was, yeah. 
it was a great experience watching, and it will probably be even better when you can watch it, uh, like, like all in one shot. A lot of, there was a lot of yelling at the end of every episode. Right, you're watching it week yeah, to week, and, end and uh, like ending in really bad places. Yes. Right. <laughs> like a show like this should, and so it would be. It's it is great that people can now watch this, you know, much closer together. Right. Um, yeah, it's 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 a different experience, definitely watching it because I did rewatch it before this just to kind of make sure that I remembered things and you know might have caught some other small details. And it's definitely interesting watching it back to back. It it does feel different. I don't know if I like it more, but it's certainly less like agonizing. Yes, <laughs> when you don't have to wait an entire week for the next uh, the next episode. Right. But yeah, I really this this was interesting when I was thinking about reviewing this because I I almost wasn't sure if I should because I felt like the reaction to this show is really interesting because I feel like a lot of people really disliked this show and especially a lot of people really hated the ending of this show. Right. I heard like very vehement. Yeah. And I don't like I could kind of see maybe like the things that people would complain about. But to me... It did not at all seem like, oh, I'm so, like, angry about this ending. Like, this ending was so terrible. Yeah, this was a show that I remember I remember us watching it, and I was thinking, like, this is a show that's got to, as long as it doesn't screw the ending up completely, this will be a great show. It right. doesn't necessarily have to hit it out of the park because the rest of the show is so strong. As long as there's no Eden of the East... Yes, as long as it doesn't Eden of the East, the ending, which right. completely like screws up that entire show, you don't even need to watch that whole show anymore, then then it'll be it'll be fine. And I feel like the ending wasn't amazing, but it didn't it it wasn't a terrible ending. It was right. it was an ending that didn't leave me saying, What the fuck? It was an ending where maybe a couple of things were a bit more obvious than I thought. Um, yeah, and there was a couple other things that maybe I thought at the very end I think maybe they could have played out more if they had a little bit of a longer season just with sort of the the real, the interaction between him and the the murderer. But, you know, I think that overall probably it was better that they didn't have too many episodes to try to fill. So I'm okay with kind of how they had to wrap things up. I I've noticed that like part of the in general, like the way that people have receptions to things is that it seems that people are less likely to say, oh, that ended fine or whatever. E even things that are OK end up being polarized. To, this is like the biggest piece of garbage yeah. ever or this is like, uh, like the best thing ever. More often than not, the biggest piece of garbage ever. But I also notice that fans in general tend to strongly dislike any sort of ambiguity in storytelling and especially in ending resolutions to say like, Oh, you know, there needs to be more cause this is like an open end. Like some of these things don't necessarily need to be delved into. And I would argue that um, based right. on some, how some prequel things have worked out that maybe it's better that some of these things aren't always <laughs> uh, explained on not talking about a race specifically, right. but just in a general sense. Yeah. And I mean, I think that there's definitely a few things that maybe you could argue like, no, they never explain how he has this ability or why there's some stuff at the end that the the killer talks about these uh people that he sees and he talks about um in reference to an old story um which is a story about this guy who is in hell and 
a there's a spider thread that's like dropped down to him and he tries to <laughs> climb back out of hell and they kind of go over it really quickly and then like the the spider thread breaks and so he talks about like seeing people that are like connected by this thread like in the the story and it's never explained whether that is something that's somehow analogous to Satoru's ability like it's some other kind of maybe psychic thing or whether it's a hallucination or what they never explain any of that you just kind of have to okay this is just this thing that this guy is is responding to I feel like and you know I guess this plot line isn't the most unique one, but it, it almost feels like this author watched... Uh, there was this British series some, some years ago called Life on Mars. Yeah, they remade and, it into a US series too, I think. Right, and it had... Um, it didn't necessarily have like the single ongoing plot line that this show has, mm -hmm. but it had sort of a similar concept where there was a guy in the modern... in you know modern America and then... Uh, or modern Britain as it was then, and... It was hit by a car and then wakes up in the past and right. uh, and now has to sort of solve these sorts of crimes from that perspective with with the knowledge that he is in the past and, and you know knowing knowing he's from you know 2006 when the show came out. Sure. So I was yeah. curious if if the author might have watched that show because that was a worldwide you know worldwide popular show. Um, right. And you know hmm, it would make yeah. sense. It's certainly possible, and I mean I think you know we've seen kind of similar, not in the same genre, but there's definitely been, I think, a lot of other stories about, you know, being able to kind of go back and yes. redo things. Um, it's just in this instance, it's less of the high school comedy or like the romance and more focused on the the thriller um and the mystery aspect R right i mean this same thing happened i believe it was the last couple of episodes of uh kimigori orange road similar thing happens in that mm. um uh, but yeah I, that was of course not a thriller it was a drama at that point but yeah that it was it was an interesting idea and i'm glad that they they took just one story that you were following one thread throughout the whole series and built upon it and built upon it. Right. Um, it was a bit of a bit of a case of maybe overthinking it because uh, as you know, we're going back and forth and saying, okay, this person <laughs> couldn't possibly be it. It's right. It, are they, are they just setting this up and, and such? And I mean, that might be part of part of me as well, because I remember when I was watching um, <laughs> going back a long way, I remember when I was watching Trigun, and the opening episodes of that, Vash never says he's Vash, ever, like for mm. a long time. And so I kept thinking, like, it can't be, this guy can't be Vash the Stampede. Like, this must be, like, some big reveal that's going to happen later. No, he was Vash the Stampede. <laughs> he, just did, he just didn't say he was Vash the Stampede. Right. I just didn't respond to anyone calling him Vash the Stampede. I just, I thought I was overthinking at, the, at that right. point. Yeah, and I think, and this is an instance where I can kind of understand maybe some of the people that had issues with it. Like, I know some people thought that it was kind of too obvious who the the culprit was. And I was watching it, when I was watching it again, I was thinking about that. And I can see that argument, but I didn't respond to it that way. And I think that there's a couple reasons. And for one, I think it was, at least at the time... You're not quite sure whether, like, certain things that seem obvious, you can read it as it being really obvious, or you can read it as, like, 
okay, they're trying to make it so obvious that they're, you know, faking me out. That they're trying to make you make you think that and then right, lead you another direction. Right. And so, like, yeah, I can kind of see that argument. And, and some people, I think, were bothered by that. But I think the other thing, too, is that there's a part, and I'm, I don't want to spoil things too much, but I think it's a little bit hard to talk about this series without having some kind of spoilers. So if you haven't seen it and you definitely don't want anything spoiled, you might want to wait and come back and listen after you've had a chance to see it, just in case. When Satoru, he confronts the person and, and it's finally, like, revealed, like, yes, this definitely is the person. Because it's somebody that he was close to, he has this internal monologue of like, I, I should have realized, but I didn't want to think that it was this person. I feel like for me, I was in that kind of same position as Satoru, as in the audience, is that, yeah, there's clues that it could be this person, and maybe it was obvious, and maybe you you should have realized, but you you don't want it to be that person. And so you kind of like don't want to believe that it's them. And so you're willing to sort of question some of the evidence, or you're willing to sort of make excuses for certain things. Like, well, there's another explanation for this. And also, I don't think that it's the case, like, that this person was completely suspicious all the time. There's all of these other portions where they seem innocent or they do things that it's like, why would they do this if they were, like, this horrible person? And I think it's like a lot of times in real life where you have some of these cases of someone who turns out to be a serial killer or whatever, and you you know, other people knew this person and didn't really have any idea. And I think part of that is that you're seeing all of these other aspects of this person. And so you're not thinking of them as like, this is a bad person. And some of it is also maybe like, you don't want to think about it. I think that the show does a good job in sort of misdirecting you a lot of the time. Mm. And, and and it does a good job in, in a good way. Um, I mean, there are, I remember a Sherlock Holmes story that started and th- this was like late in the run where I-, I think Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was trying to trying to fucking kill the character. And <laughs> which he did. And then everyone got so mad that he yes, had to undo which he it. did. And the, 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 the story literally starts out with him getting a clue. And then he s- stands up and tells you the entire process, like says exactly who it is and what it is that happens and who mm-hmm. the killer is. And the entire time you're thinking, it can't actually no, it can't, be this, can't be. but no, it actually turns be that. out it, it is. I'm the man. Is. He's right. Yeah, he tells you that in the first like page, right? Um, but you're not again. It's this. It's this whole sort of series of like misdirection, and you're you're not thinking. You're thinking like it couldn't possibly be. And so the the it does. I think a race does a good job of maybe th- making you question what you're seeing right. all the time. And I think it's also like maybe it's it's a difference of so, uh, some degree of logical investment versus emotional investment. Like I think if you are kind of emotionally invested, then like I said, it's like you don't want it to be that person. And so you're kind of willing to overlook certain things or or latch on to other, you know, potential explanations that could make that not such damning evidence but maybe if you're looking at it you know purely from a logistical standpoint like maybe it's too obvious i suppose that you could argue that maybe the series could have benefited by having 
more alternate suspects. I don't think that bothered me because... And part of that is because, like, I like a lot of um, true crime stuff and crime documentaries and things like that. And one of the things that separates um, a lot of serial offenders from regular cases is that, especially when you are talking about, like, child abductions or, or harm to children, is that the vast majority of the time, if someone is murdered or if a child is abducted or a child is um, killed... It's somebody very close. It's a family member or it's, um, you know, somebody that is well known. Whereas when you have a lot of serial cases, a lot of times why they're harder to solve is because they tend to pick people that they don't have any connection with. And because they don't have any personal connection, it's more difficult to get from the victim to the offender. And so... I don't think it necessarily bothered me to say that there's not a lot of other people around like that it could possibly be because I think for me, it always seemed perfectly legitimate that it could just be somebody that they don't know. And so I, I wasn't really thinking like, oh, it has to be one of these people. Like it has to be somebody that's at their school or that's, you know, a family member it, it could just be some random other person in town that, you know, maybe his mom would have recognized because, you know, she saw them around or from something where she did a job as a reporter and she interviewed somebody for a local news story or something. But it's not necessarily somebody that he would know. So... I guess maybe that's another complaint that you could lodge against it. But for me, it didn't really bother me. Sometimes I right. think in terms of like these kinds of shows, I'm, I'm never certain of it, like whether or not they are assuming that the viewing audience is savvy enough that they are deliberately either planting red herring such that the, the twist is that there's no twist. Um, because sometimes <laughs> right. people are like, oh, it's so obvious that they're they're making it seem like it's going to be this so it definitely won't be that but turns out it is and that's a surprise and i actually am unsure if that's better or worse because i think the alternative is that you run the risk of writing a thriller or a story like that that's just unbound by leaps of logic because it's like surprise you weren't expecting that one were you um right, right. some random thing yeah and they definitely don't do that like there's no there's no kind of random thing that happens or stuff that kind of doesn't make any sense. Like I, I feel like everything did fit together. And um, I think that's the important part for one of these for certainly a thriller, because if things don't make any logical sense, if it's just, you know, some random person out of nowhere or then it, it sort of undoes the whole show. Right. Uh, you you can. I mean, like, oh the, well, I never could have figured that out because I didn't have some piece of information. Right. That and that's, was necessary that's, to get what was happening. And that's that is the sign of a good thriller and a good mystery is watching it and saying, "There's I can't possibly figure this out," and then going back and watching it again and saying, "I can't possibly have missed this." Right. So. Right. I was always like not a fan of like, and I know a lot of people love these things, but like the the scream movies always struck me as bullshit because they deliberately would film like six different people could be the culprit because you know well whatever, and then it's like okay, well 
doesn't this fundamentally just bullshit your entire like lead up to like this air quotes mystery? It's not really a mystery because it just kind of can be anybody you pull out of a hat. But uh, I'm in the minority on that because people fucking love Scream. But um, maybe I like the first movie, but um, most of the sequels are pretty. And then they made a show and all that kind of stuff. I remember like. The only part I would say against the first movie is that I actually would have preferred that when they said, like, what if there's no reason? And then they just left it at that. And then they threw out, like, a convoluted reason about, you know. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, I mean, in the case of Erased, certainly I don't think that they are making it such that, oh, they could have just... Uh, animated like a bunch of like phony fake out things where it's up oh, this person no it's this person <laughs> and then you know the, the Mr. Burns who shot Mr. Burns style right just <laughs> I mean that one gets a pass because it's a joke of you know. yeah, so it's, a, it's a comedy right I understand it was the baby yeah. all along um, <laughs> I think I was satisfied from that perspective but also like the like the other major I think piece of the story was about Kyle, right? About this girl who's, you know, being beaten by her mother. I mean, even before she gets, you know, possibly, you know, abducted and murdered by this, the serial offender, um, is just being, you know, physically abused, uh, at home, just is, is alone and miserable. And the other, you know, big part of the show is, you know, Satoru kind of trying to make things better for her. And by the same token, it, it's not a let me relive my childhood and do it better, but it that ends up happening as a result of these other things that he's trying to do to help other people. That he right. he does form <laughs> stronger friendships than he did initially the first time around and things are much more fulfilling and i thought that that whole part of it was really satisfying and he accomplished um what he wanted to do and you know that worked out very happily and i you know and i thought that that whole part was really well done like i think honestly this relationship between these like young children was better portrayed than I think a lot of other relationships between supposedly adult <laughs> characters. Uh, and now this is a, a relatively minor thing, but it actually helped in my sort of believability of the show a lot. In that when the kids talked to each other, they talked about real things. Like, like they, Dragon Quest. And, yes, like Dragon. they talked about like, oh, I'm more of a fan of Dragon Quest. You said, no, I'm more of a fan of Final Fantasy. And those are little things. But they help sort of establish that this is a real world mm-hmm. and, you know, there's there's boundaries in this world, even though the, the concept of it is a man going back in time. Right. Um, so it little things like that helped help a lot, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think also, you know, Satoru is obviously able to do certain things because he has knowledge that he didn't have the first time around. So he knows things from the future, like he knows that this crime is going to happen And, you know, he also does have the benefit of being mentally older such that he's, you know, kind of able to maybe put things together. But I also don't feel like they do things that are kind of, like, completely impossible. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, he's able to use these advantages of having this extra knowledge and being, you know, mentally sort of more mature. But things that they do to go about 
figuring out what's happening and, and stopping it don't feel like completely nonsense. Right. So I also think that the characters are pretty good about like sometimes in these kind of series, they they sort of get themselves out of corners or artificially extend things by having characters be really, really dumb. And I yes. don't think they ever did that. No. You know, we're finally, again, four years, like, years after the fact, where we're in uh, JoJo's part four, and now we're in that part of <laughs> Diamond is Unbreakable. I'm like, okay, but you realize, you know, the story is going to continue for another, like, 14, 15 episodes because of repeated, like, person conveniently forgets that they can just do this. Uh, so, you right. know, the guy can get away. <laughs> I mean, that kind of works, at least in some cases. I mean, Okuyasu is super dumb. Like, <laughs> but yeah. But I guess you're not trying to solve it's not presented in the same sort of right there's no like yeah exactly the stakes are different i suppose but like you know when Um, you think of like death note stuff and you know there's a couple instances there where it's like okay mm -hmm. you know why not just do this and oh well it's because you'd catch the guy right now you know right um yeah i don't i hate it when i can think of a better way to solve to solve this thing or to go about searching for this well people i think there's a limit to that because a lot of people will like condemn shows for like oh why didn't you just do this or you know whatever because you've got like more information or you're not like in a the duress that they're in at the time but like, yeah you're not panicked you're not but there's some instances where they should be able to have the wherewithal to to do something based on what's been presented to them in the past or what they know we know they're capable of doing based on it's not like things it's not and yeah. there's like a there's a gradient on that, and so I I sometimes I see people like apply that a little liberally, but in the case I mean, of it's this, not like it's watching, not like watching yeah. yeah, it's not like watching Prometheus where you're like okay you're a you're a biologist, <laughs> the stupidest scientist, yeah you're a biologist who spends your entire life watching these things, and this creature you don't know has just reared its head and opened its jaws and. Do you not realize and is hissing at you and you're like, no, this is okay. How fucking dumb are you? Right. So that, yeah, I mean, that was another thing. Like even, even kind of, you know, random people like the, the teenage girl that works with him at the pizza joint is pretty quick in, in, under pressure. And, you know, yeah, she's still human. Um, and so it's not like she's magically able to solve things, but she's able to like put things together and realize things and, think quickly and so um, mm-hmm. I thought that was nice I, I mean I guess the other big complaint and this is maybe where we have to spoil things to really talk about it is people complained about um, the ending not just in terms of um, like who it turned out to be and that it was obvious but in some of the logistics like I saw people you know comment about like oh well you know, how did they know to put, like, the cushion thing to catch him right at that exact spot, you know, coming off of the roof? And it's like, okay. It's because I saw the yeah. game by David Fincher, and <laughs> we're like, yes. I mean, it, it, he did plan it out in advance, and there weren't really... There was a railing around the edge of the roof, so the areas maybe where he could have gone over were somewhat limited, uh, so I think you could argue that there was some reasoning for why it should be there, but okay, fine. Like, yeah, maybe that's a little bit ridiculous, but I don't think it makes it like the shittiest ending in like anime history or whatever. And that that is, you know, I guess people 
that some people seem to think that it's like now like a benchmark for shitty endings, and I'm like, I don't really think it's that bad. Like, I don't know. What do you guys think? Uh, that didn't. I wasn't infuriated. Me, really. I don't remember like walking away being like, I just wasted like the last several months watching this show, like which has happened sometimes, and it's often sure. part of why we kind of like to wait for shows to end before we review them, because we don't want to steer people to that. But I didn't get that you know, reaction from watching the show. I can understand more reactions of sort of like, a, oh, that was it. Or, you know, like I was sort of like expecting a little more. Like I can at least understand where some people are coming from there, but not the reaction that we see so much of online of, you know, fuck this noise and all that kind of stuff. Like that to me seems right. like it's a little excessive. Okay. I'm glad it's not just me because I, I, I felt so weird, like, looking at people commenting about it, and I almost wasn't sure about reviewing it, because it was like, it, am I just, like, really stupid, and there's, like, something that I'm not seeing that's so terrible about this that, like, everybody else is seeing? And I don't know, maybe I still am. But I, th I think <laughs> it's much like how many of the things that I like are things that people have decided are the stupidest things, <laughs> and uh, maybe, it, maybe <laughs> it is me. I just assumed that he had more information than you know, than the other guy did and was able to plan ahead. And I mean, his, he was doing that for quite a while. Right. And so I didn't, again, I just didn't get that impression that that was like this ridiculous thing. It might've been a bit contrived. Yeah. I think like, I understand that it's a bit contrived, but in order to have, but I have seen far like, more contrived things on Sherlock. Yeah. I was just going to yeah, say, and that's and, the number one show in the world. Right. Yes. And, you know, even though people seem to relish in complaining about that show, they all dutifully turn it, tune in every time they announce another series, even after they swear off of it, they all come back and they all watch it and they all like then can proceed to complain again. So it's like, I don't know if people are just addicted to proving how they're smarter than the show or, um, you know, not willing to just point out, okay, yeah, that's ridiculous and doesn't matter or what have you. But, um, yeah, there is a limit, though, because people are immediately going to fire back at me and be like, eh, be daring. you always point out, you know, these shows, the geniuses acting like bullshit. It's like, this isn't the same thing. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm against, like, people being portrayed as geniuses, and to do that, everyone else has to act stupider than me. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> but this, I don't think, is really the code that. Geus. The Code Geass model. Well, I mean, <laughs> right. you know, even the Death Note model and stuff like that. But it's just like a lot of stuff. And I don't even dislike Death Note. But I'm just saying, like, there are portions in that where, you know, people are uncharacteristically dumb given their reputation yeah. in the show. Um, right. And, and I even just mentioned, like, Diamond is Unbreakable, which, of course, I'm watching the hell out of that. But, you know, there's portions where it's like, remember, you have the ability to do this because you've been doing it like all these other episodes, you know, why not just do that right now? And then, you know, maybe uh, you don't get killed or you don't, uh, you know, let this guy get away. You know, that's kind of right. like where we are at the moment. But like, this is not a case of I pulled this out of a hat, literally, and now I win. Yeah, right. And I think that that's always the the problem that you have with with a mystery and a thriller is that it has to make sense. It has to straddle the line between being something that people don't necessarily expect, but it can't come out of the blue. Mm -hmm. So it's it's a very, very hard line to, to get right. And I think the show mostly gets it right. I think that yeah. it is it is enough that I still absolutely recommend the show. 
Yeah, I mean, I still found it satisfying. I yeah, I there are things that I can critique about it, and I can I can see where some people are coming from in the things that they 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 didn't like or that they were disappointed in. But yeah, like I don't feel like I wasted my time watching it, or you know that it was like I felt really let down or anything. So. That's my take on it. So I don't know. I'd be curious maybe to see for people who who disliked it a lot more or felt more let down by the ending, like what in particular, um, if maybe it's something that I didn't discuss. And um, if, if they did, if they felt the ending was contrived, I want to know, did you like Code Geass? Because if you did, that's <laughs> fucking bullshit because Code Geass was the most contrived fucking bullshit in the world. <laughs> The way that that show ended, right. that like well, first I season. Well, I mean, Code Geass is also much more train ridiculous wreck? from the get. Right, it's I think intentionally a little more realistic. amped up as opposed to yeah. you know talking about real life events, real life things. You know, I think they're at least pretty upfront that uh, yeah, this is the alternate uh, history sort of scenario. But uh, yeah, I mean, you can watch all of a race. I believe it's still all on Crunchyroll. I think um, yeah. it's an Anaplex release, so uh, get ready for if you want to own that Good on home video. Fucking buying that, uh, but at it. least to Anaplex's yeah. credit, they do. Did they even put out a physical release? Um, I it either got announced or it's out and sold out forever. It's like equivalent for me. Once I hear Anaplex licensed it, I'm just like, okay, I'm not going to own um, this show on uh, Blu-ray. It got released on Region A Blu-ray, so I think that's still Japan. We are Region A. Oh, we are Region A. Okay, Anaplex of America. Suggested retail price for half the show, 115 bucks. For half? Wait, this show's only... It's two, it's two Blu-rays. Two Blu-rays. Okay, so, so a two-disc set, and they want $115 for one disc that has five episodes on it, or six episodes on uh, it? That's what I'm looking at here. Uh, it's, oh my God. So, I'll take your word for that it. That might be Japan. Yeah, that might be Japan only. Like, even Anaplex of America. It says Distributor Anaplex of America, so I... That's all I can go on. Because that seems bad even for Anaplexes. Oh, my God. Reasons. All right, so let me... I'm, I'm going to pull up the website right now. Okay, so here we go. Um, <laughs> streaming uh, is here. Blu-ray. Okay, so Blu-ray Volume One comes out October eighteenth, uh, and uh, yeah, the retail price is uh, ninety dollars, and oh you God. get uh, yeah, this has the dub and it has you know all that. So yeah, they want um, I guess you're dropping one hundred and eighty uh, dollars total because volume one and volume oh. two are each $90. And yes, the second one is just episode seven through 12. And so each set That's is, so frustrating. each set is two Blu-rays. <laughs> so uh, this is already kind of crazy that, you know, you put like three episodes on a disc, um, you know, what kind of oh, okay. extras are on there that justify you get a dub audio commentary, uh, and then you get, uh, Texas opening and Texas ending. Um, they do throw in the soundtrack, and we haven't mentioned that, uh, you know, this is Yuki Kaijira soundtrack. Um, you get a booklet. Yes, and a very good opening from uh, Asian Kung Fu generation. Asian. So, you know, everyone knows yeah. like big hot bands. But yeah, you know, again, nice. Uh, you get booklets and stuff like that. But again, you're looking at $180 to own the show, and all right, fine. But at least they make it so you can still watch it on streaming. It's pretty readily right. available Crunchyroll, Funimation, yeah. Hulu, Daisuke. And it is only whatever. 12 episodes, so it's not a huge commitment to get through it. Yeah, I love Monster and Monster's probably a better show, but it's also 75 but episodes. Monster. It's right. 75 episodes and 18 and, volumes of manga. And it's you can't find it anymore. Right. So 
I thought That's... they just came out with like reprints, like nice reprints of the manga. Um, maybe for the I manga. That was, that was like three, but that, four even that years ago, seems like so. it had been like a little while ago. I know the anime is just gone. Mm. Yeah, you could you can probably still find the anime for like cheap per disc, but you have to like piece together the the whole right. collection. So, but yeah, yeah that, that's a shame. Such a good yeah. series. But yeah, this is a it's a I think it's a great little 12 episode series. I think that uh it's a shame that uh it's got that horrific price for if you want to own it. Right. Um and I'm not going to buy it at that price. Yeah, um, I mean I I liked the show, but I that's a a lot for 12 episodes. It's at the Aniplex. I I appreciate that we can watch the show. They're not the Oh, what's that other company? They're not that's... Voyager Entertainment, where, yeah. okay, you can't even stream uh, 2199 uh, Yamato, and now there's a sequel coming out, and no one knows about it or is anticipating it here because none of us saw the original show legally because there's no right. streaming option. I'm fine with charging your, you know, usurious uh, Japanese Blu-ray prices as long as there's a free streaming option. you got to have both. You can't just have the expensive disc only because that's also the um gundam the origin gundam thunderbolt mo- well thunderbolt streamed but i mean you know right if you, if you like, i know like i really want to watch origin but i i feel like the i don't like the price right and your window for seeing it streaming is like really short and really specific and you have to like be monitoring it's like oh i got these two weeks or whatever it is that it is you can watch things streaming and then most of the and isn't it like isn't it like 12 bucks for 48 hours oh yeah if you want to do the rental yeah there's all that's another thing for that that you know they have the paid rental for single episodes which is also how they did gundam unicorn and i'm like i'm less of a fan of that but it appears to work because they've had three releases that way uh, otherwise, they would have changed. The uh, thing. I don't. I don't like the idea of paying for something like that much for something like that that is not something I then own. So yeah, this is not Gundam: The Origin review. This is uh, <laughs> erased. This is this is the complaining about Anaplex and there. <laughs> well, again, I can't even complain about it. It's like you can still watch this show. You just won't yes, buy you can. the show, you and most watch. people just watch shows anyway. So. This is completely transparent to them. So I, I would say, yeah, for 12 episodes, it's fairly quick watch. I would uh, check it out. See for yourself. Uh, if you think yeah. we're full of shit on this ending, uh, you can always leave us a comment on the website. If there are any last remarks on yeah, Erased. I'm, I'm very curious if if the ending ruined the show for you or if it was still a solid show with no, maybe uh, maybe not the greatest ending. I'm I'm very curious because for me it was great show and and an ending that was reasonable, not fantastic.
really have anything else. Um, <laughs> I think I'm done. So do we want to? Do we know what we're doing next time? I've been promising it for a while. I think we we need to go back to our roots, go back to our old school roots, and take a look at something old school. I've been promising it for a bit, and I'm going to review I City. Yes, uh, from 1986, uh, everyone's favorite. Uh, tale of psychics with digital readouts on their foreheads so you know how psychic they are and also cool cats <laughs> with sunglasses and hard drinking detectives and bunny girls and uh, this is a crazy ass movie and we'll talk all about it uh, next time yep yes <laughs>